You are listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. Forge Leadership Network mentors, connects, and equips young conservatives to lead in politics, culture, and business. For more information or to get involved with Forge, please visit forgeleadership.org. this same group maybe a year ago or so. Dan Ziegler, who's the executive director of the RSC, used to be very involved with all this, as you know, and he uh, had me come in and speak to the group. And I was so impressed with the group that was assembled that last time over at Heritage. And I know that you got a lot of new folks on this call, I'm sure. But I, I just expressed for a couple minutes what I, what I shared with, with those, that group. And I just got off 20 minutes ago with a, a nationwide call with Students for Life, a similar group. They're doing a lot of good work right now. And trying to encourage them in the same way that I would all of you. And that is just to say that this has never been more needed than it is right now. These, you know, youth leadership movements, I say youth, I mean, you know, younger, younger people like that, because we're in uncharted waters in so many ways in the country. And we were before the pandemic, but now certainly coming out of the COVID-19 crisis, there's almost kind of a reset around the country in so many ways on so many things. And Rewinding a little bit back to before the pandemic struck, when I ran for chairman of the Republican Study Committee, which is the largest caucus of conservatives on Capitol Hill, we got 148 members in the House, and it's been referred to since its founding in 1973 as the intellectual arsenal of conservatism in the House. And I ran for chairman, and I I, kind of made this explanation, this pitch to my colleagues, and I said, look, I know I'm not the most senior guy here, but I'm going to state the obvious what many of us can, can see uh, and understand with their own eyes. And that is that we were already entering choppy seas and uncharted uh, waters in so many ways. We're in the, the Trump era and, and, and a lot of things have changed. And, and I said, a lot of conservatives and even people who are really animated in, in 2016 to come out and elect this president and to advance the, many of these ideas, if you stop a lot of conservatives and you ask them to identify and define what it means to be a conservative, you'll you, you get some surprising answers. The point being that, that we, in many ways, we've kind of lost our fixed points on the horizon, so to speak. I'm from Louisiana. It's a, you know, I'm from the north part of the state, but we're a, we're a coastal state. And in Louisiana, everything's explained in either a, a hurricane or a football metaphor. Okay, that's how we just understand the world. And I, I, I using the hurricane metaphor, I, I just explained that the way I see this is that we're, we're, in, we're entering some dangerous waters. We were, and uh, at that time pre-pandemic. And I said, we need to calibrate where we are as we go into the new Congress, the 116th Congress, which started, you know, last January. I said, we have got to be able to articulate and, and, and really communicate with consistency and conviction what it means to be a conservative. Why are we different than the other side? And wh- what is it that we ostensibly stand for? And I said, you know, hearkening back to Reagan, as we often do on so many of these things, Ronald Reagan famously said in his farewell address at the end of his, you know, storied uh, public life, he said, you know, they called me the great communicator, but I really wasn't. I was just communicating great things. And they're the same great things that have guided our nation since its founding. And so I told all my colleagues in the RSC, I said, what, what are those great things? How would you identify that? How would you describe it? If you had just a couple of minutes in an elevator with somebody and you wanted to convince them the, the, the correctness, the rightness of the conservative cause, what would you say? And I said, to me, it would boil down to seven core principles. And these aren't magical. This is this the way I would articulate it, explain it. If you distilled the entire Republican Party platform down to a half page, you know, all the principles that, that undergird the platform, what, what would it be? And I said, 
this is my, my take on it and what I would suggest to you all. It boils down to these things, individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets and human dignity. I said, now under each of those, there's lots of those are, you know, there's subcategories under each of those and, and we could articulate all that and as time permits, we will. But let's agree at least on this basic set of fixed points on the horizon. As we're in high seas, as we're in uncharted waters, we have to keep our eyes on those things because that's what's gonna guide us as it has since the time of our founding. Why does that relate to all you guys and how does it relate? Well, that was all pre-pandemic and now everything is in disarray. You know, there's been a, almost a total reset on the table. You hear people who previously described as, you know, fiscal conservatives uh, crying now for the government to save us, you know, for large deficit spending programs and all these other things. Um, people are losing their way and they're forgetting what it is ostensibly that we all stand for. And so how it relates to you guys is that <clears throat> it's just never been more important than it is right now for us to have a new generation of leaders that are up and coming who understand these basic truths, who can, uh, you know, talk about this with conviction and consistency and clarity. And <clears throat> I just think that <clears throat> what you're doing right now is so important for that reason. <clears throat> I'm getting choked up about it. Can you tell I'm so compassionate about it? <clears throat> we, need, we need some help. We need, there's not enough of us who are doing this work and are able to articulate it this way. And so I would encourage you to do that to take advantage of opportunities like this, these rare opportunities, extraordinary opportunities like the, the Forge Leadership Summit and all these, you know, the conferences, because what you have to understand is that it is so important for you personally to have that kind of mentorship and connectivity and the training that you'll get. Man, I wish I'd had the opportunity to do some of that, you know, when I was your age, it would have made a big difference to me, but you're, you're given an opportunity to do things like that and it'll make a big difference to you. And we need you to be well-versed and well-trained and well-mentored because this is not a game. We're in a battle for the very future of the Republic. I mean, in a literal sense where this is not hyperbole, you can look now, watch the evening news and see this play out. Um, we're, we're, in a, we're at a critical crossroads as a country, mixing my metaphors now, and we've got to decide are we going to maintain a limited government, individual freedom, constitutional republic, or are we going to shift into some big government socialism kind of model. And I think all of us know the answer to what it must be, but there are fewer and fewer people able to make that case and to articulate it well. And so we need you guys uh, to join us on the front lines. And so really excited about the opportunity you have. I hope that you'll pursue those things and that you'll use people like me as a resource in the, in the days and weeks and years ahead, because we, we have to be investing in you because uh, we'll be passing that baton on someday really soon. So let, let me stop talking and, uh, and, and see if y'all have questions or things you want me to address specifically. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for joining us, Congressman. We're doing questions uh, through an app, and so I'll be curating those. So first question says, what are a few practical tips for living out your faith in the political realm when using faith as a platform of conviction is looked down upon by the left? Well, wear it on your sleeve, not in a way to... Um to do it in a way that's boastful because the apostle Paul told us, he warned us directly against that, right? The only thing we can boast about is uh, the strength that we have in, through Christ and in our faith, but to not, not hide from it, because I, I can tell you that there's a, there's a desire, there's a thirst among people, particularly right now, people are looking for reliable answers. I mean, to the big questions about life, right? And there's this admonition in scripture, 1 Peter 3.15 says, 
always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have. And, and if you're if you're put in a position of influence and and you have a platform, and all of us do, we have a sphere of influence around us, that we have to be faithful to that, and we have to be prepared in season and out to give those eternal answers that that are the satisfying answers to all life's big questions. And so. What the key to it is just remembering who you are and who you serve. You know, I served in the state legislature for a little while, and then I got to Congress. And people often ask, in each one of those arenas at each level, what was the most surprising thing, you know, that, to you when you got there? And I, I always say it's pretty easy. The most surprising thing, the most shocking thing, the most <laughs> frightening thing, is that when you get in these these arenas, you you recognize that many people. I mean, I would even say most people who are elected to public office certainly at the local state level, even at the, at the congressional level, they get elected to these offices, these high positions of power and authority, and they have no idea what they really believe. And what I mean by that is they don't have a fully formed worldview. They don't have a, uh, even in most cases, a fully formed philosophy of government. And so people are often perplexed and they see elected officials swinging this way and that on, on issues and you know erratic voting records and all that. And, and the reason for it is pretty simple. They, they didn't get elected to do to advance any particular philosophy. They, they just kind of go with whatever the loudest lobbyist or the biggest influence is, and that's how they make their decisions. I had an eighth grade teacher that told me something that had a big impact on my life. He was a great Christian leader, and he said, you know, what's popular isn't always right, and what's right isn't always popular. And if you remember some, some basic uh, truths like that, and you remember who you serve, and that's God himself, and then your constituents, and you serve the, the, the causes and the principles that we believe in, it makes it a whole lot easier. And then you you know what you do? You gradually care a whole lot less about what uh, critics say and think and believe because you know that you're doing the right thing. And here's the other thing I'll tell you about that. When you do that, it inspire, when you show backbone, it inspires backbone in others. And we, we need a few more strong leaders who will swim against the tide because it encourages others to do the same. So Look, I, part of it's perspective and part of it is just knowing why you get into that. Every, the old axiom is, and y'all have heard it before, but everybody runs for office for one of two reasons. They either want to be somebody or do something. You, you, want to, you want to kind of generally stray away from the people that are in the first category and navigate towards the others because those are the ones that are, that are going to do the meaningful things and the things that, that you know, are worthy of following. Awesome. Thank you, Congressman. Our next question is from Rebecca. Hello, Congressman. Thank you so much for taking some time out of your busy schedule to talk to us. I just have a question for you. I was wondering what it's like to balance your political interests with the people you're representing, if they're often together or if sometimes you find yourself representing the people and it's not exactly what your preferred political interest would be. Yeah, sure. That's a, that's a, a great question and a common one. My background's in constitutional law and I was a, a federal court litigator for about 20 years. I defended religious liberty and the sanctity of life and those, those big issues in the courts before I got into politics. And I learned that often, um, you know, public opinion could be drifting one way when the right thing and the right argument and the right principle is sometimes opposed to that. And so it's what my eighth grade teacher said, you know, I mean, that really is at the end of the day, what you're supposed to do. When the, when the founders, I'm a nerd about this stuff because I'm, I'm a constitutional law guy, I'm old school. And you know, you look at what the founders intended and the way they set up our republic. It, it's a unique thing. It's still an experiment on the world stage, by the way. We're only 243 years into this, and we don't know how long a republic like this can last. But the founders said there's a couple of presuppositions to, to make it so. And one of the presuppositions is that you'll have an informed and engaged electorate, that if you're going to have government of, by, and for the people, and the people have to be informed and engaged to make that work, 
But one of the other premises of our republic, of course, is that um, we're not a democracy. Democracy, of course, is two wolves and a sheep deciding what's for dinner. We're not a democracy, we're a republic. And in a republic, you have elected leaders who serve the interest of smaller segments of the population. It's the only way it, it can work that way. And when you're elected to serve the way I've always seen it, is you're elected to first do the right thing and then to serve the will of the constituency. And sometimes popular opinion, as I said, goes a different way of what's right. And so you have to be willing to make tough choices and make hard votes and do things that are right and, and be able and willing to go back home and explain to people why you may not have voted in the way that, that they, they thought they wanted you to, right? And, and I've, I've had a lot of experience with this and, and I can just tell you when you're authentic and you're true and you share your heart, people will forgive you voting a, a way that they didn't like because they know that you did it with the right intention and, and the right, you know, the right principle in mind. So, you know, I, I'll give you a quick anecdote, a funny story. There's a, there's a group locally in my area that um, hey, came up with this great new app, this great, the latest invention, right? And it's this app that basically you can take the pulse of your constituents, they say, if everybody opts in and purchases the app, you can take real-time polls of your district on every vote you take, they say. That's how they sell their software. And they came to make their pitch to me because some state reps and state senators had, had kind of bought into it in the area. And I, I had to explain to these gentlemen, I had no interest in their app whatsoever. And they said, what do you mean? Don't you want to know what your constituents think about every single vote? And I said, I'm, you know, that's of interest to me, but it's not going to govern how I vote. I'm not voting because something's popular. I'm voting because it's right. So, you know, it would be, frankly, a waste of my time to take the pulse of voters. See, the reason that we send elected representatives is because I'm supposed to be the one that is well-versed in every dynamic of a particular issue to know all the facts and the figures and to, to go deep. And a lot of, the, a lot of people make, uh, you know, stir the, spur the moment opinions based on some talking point or conjecture or misinformation that they heard. And so my job as a representative is to dig deep and know the facts and know exactly how I'm going to vote because I know the people's heart and their best interest. And the popular opinion doesn't always align with that. So that's a long-winded answer to explain to you. These guys, they're still mad at me. They can't understand why I don't want their, their app. I mean, it's of no use to me because I came to advance the, the principles that made America great and going to continue to make America great. And if they fall out of uh, favor, then, then so be it. But I'll be the last guy standing that'll do that. And that's just the way I see it. All right. Thank you. Uh, next question is from Denora. Yes. Thank you for talking with us today. My question would be, what is something that you do to remember who you are and who you serve? Like something that you do regularly to keep that at the forefront, uh, maybe daily, regularly, I don't know, something that um, is helpful for you. Yeah, sure. Well, you know, you, you, you have to, you have to be authentic about who you are. And, and one of my mentors, kind of a big brother to me is Tony Perkins, who's president of the Family Research Council. We came up together in Louisiana and he, he told me a long time ago, he said, you know, Mike, if we're gonna purport to be pro-family guys, we have to actually be pro-family guys. We have to live that, right? And so my wife, Kelly, and I have four kids, 18 and, and under. And the, the way I stay grounded and centered is to, is to be home as much as I can. And daily prayer and devotion is, is certainly important, increasingly so now in this, in this wild arena and wild environment that we're in. But, but it, that's a, a great question and a really important one. It's just you have to keep your priorities straight. It's easy to lose your head. And the, the higher people go in the echelons of power, the greater and greater the temptations there are if they walk into those arenas and don't know and don't have a very settled thing in their heart and mind who they are and who they serve before they get there. 
And, and that's the admonition I always give to, to you know, younger people who are the up and coming leaders is that be sure you have all that set in solid concrete before you enter elected office or these arenas, because I've seen, you know, seemingly good people just get eaten alive by it. the power goes to their head, the, the temptations go to their head and because they, they lose sight of, of those perspectives. And so it's, it's a, it's something that's a daily reminder. I mean, I'll give you a, from a spiritual sense, you know, you know, our lives are a living sacrifice, right? And, and the thing about a living sacrifice is it can crawl right off the altar every day. So you have to constantly die to self, right? From a spiritual sense, it's a daily sacrifice that we make for the causes that we serve and the kingdom and, you know, that we serve. So I, I think that's a really important reminder. I'm glad you asked the question. It's a daily thing every day. All right, next question is from uh, Jake. Yeah, thank you, Congressman, for speaking with us. As somebody who's interested in pursuing law after undergrad, how did that shape the way that you serve in public office now? And how's that kind of been a part of your story? Great question, Jake. I, I recommend law school to, I'm sure a lot of people on this call are kind of inclined that way. You know, it's a, it's a natural kind of inclination that you have. I'm the first college graduate in my family, you know, obviously the first to go to law school and all that. I, I was blessed to have people in my life early on, mentor kind of folks who took an interest in me. My dad was a disabled firefighter, so I had no, you know, frame of reference about college or anything, but but people took an interest in me and they started telling me at a young age, you know, you should be a lawyer, you'd be a great lawyer. I had no idea what that meant. I'm really glad I got, you know, kind of steered in that direction. But I would tell you that it's a very valuable thing to have if you aspire to to, to get into the legislative arena at some point, public policy because it gives you a leg up in your ability to understand just kind of the dynamics of, of what's happening, to understand, to be able to take a, a piece of complex legislative text and break it down. I mean, the skills, you know, the analytical skills that you learn in law school are, are just really beneficial. You know, I, I've practiced for about 20 years before I got into elected office. So this is in a way, you know, kind of an extension of what I used to do. And if you want to be a total nerd about it, Try to uh, try to get into the arena of constitutional law because there's only a handful of people that do that. And the funny thing about it is, in these arenas, when when you walk in when you walk into the state legislature or Congress for that matter, and your background, you're known to be the constitutional law guy. They just assume you know what you're talking about, even when you don't. It's kind of funny, kind of scary in a way. But you get you know you get a lot of deference for that. I mean, uh, people have different areas of expertise and stuff in these arenas, but. That's one that I just think would serve you well. I have four kids. I think I mentioned that. And I have uh, two daughters this fall who will be in college. One will be a sophomore, one is a freshman. And they have different aptitudes and skills, but none, nobody in my family is good at math. So they're almost doomed to go do the law school route. But, but I'm, getting, I'm telling, I've advised them to get business degrees because it makes you more marketable and to get a law degree because the amount of time that you have to invest in that for what you get on the other side and the value of it to me is just a great investment. It's three and a half years or three years in some states. Whereas if you go to med school, you got eight or 10 years or whatever, or longer, right? So you, you come out with a doctorate and you have a platform, particularly in the arena of public policy and this kind of stuff to just do a lot of things. And um, you never have to litigate a case if you don't like that stuff. And there's plenty you can do with it. So I, to me, it's just, it's a no brainer. If you, if you even think you have a, you know, a, an inkling that you might go in that direction, I think the law, law degree is a great way to go. Awesome. Thank you, Congressman. One, one last question. What do you think are, is the biggest challenge conservatives will face as, as the country reopens in light of COVID-19? Well, I mean, very practically and immediately is some of these debates that we'll have to, to be able to explain, you know, you hear the, the, out, the cry for 
more help, you know, from the federal government. And, and what we have to be able to do is articulate our principles in a way that are, that are reasonable and show compassion and understanding, but also are, are, are faithful to these, these core principles that we believe in and the things that we believe are going to be best for the country in the short run and the long run. I mean, I'll give you a quick example. We, we had a conference call with the, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Chairman Powell, just a, several days ago. And uh, there's a bunch of conservatives in the House on the call with him. And he was saying things like, I mean, I, this is not, you know, I'm not disparaging Chairman Powell, but I'm just telling you that he was saying to us, he knew he was on the phone with fiscal conservatives, and he was saying to dream big, you know, like in terms of new federal spending. And then he went and said the same thing to, to Speaker Pelosi. And she took his advice and they, they gave us a $3 trillion spending bill. You know, I mean, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve. And he told us on a phone call that, you know, we really shouldn't be concerned about federal debt and don't worry about deficit spending. And I mean, it was just almost frightening. So, I mean, people in the highest levels of, of authority are saying things that are contrary to what we all know is true and right and best for the country. And so we have to have resolve like we've never had before. And we have to be able to look right into the, the those, those you know cameras and those hostile interviews and explain without reservation why we know this to be true. I, I said that I was at the White House two and a half weeks ago or so. The president had 19 of us come in for a meeting. It was televised and all that. And he it was about reopening. I'm on the Reopen America Task Force. And he said, um, he said, what are the ideas? And we went around the table. And I said, and I concluded with, with what I'm telling you guys now, and I'll conclude this way. I just said, Mr. President, let us not forget Larry Kudlow was sitting two seats down from me. And, I, and I, I gave him a compliment about something he said on a conference call with us a few days before that. And contrary to what Chairman Powell said, Larry Kudlow said, let's not lose sight of the core principles as we go forward, right? And I complimented him on that. And I said, Mr. President, the reason that we were able to have this record economy and all these great strides and, you know, it, up to February, right before the pandemic, we had the greatest economy in U.S. history. The reason is, Mr. President, because we advanced those same guiding principles that Reagan used to talk about, right? We advanced individual freedom, limited government, free markets, lower taxes, less regulation. Mr. President, those are the things that we have to double down on now. Those are the things that are going to get us out of the hole that we're in post-pandemic and make America as you say on the transition back to greatness. That, that's what we have to do and that's what we have to advance. And the president nodded and he agrees. So he needs all of us and, and all of us need one another to be echoing that same sentiment now more than ever. And it's gonna be unpopular in a lot of quarters to do it, but we know it's right. So that's our greatest challenge. Thank you for listening to the Forge Leadership Podcast. If you like the show, please drop a review and be sure to subscribe for all our latest episodes. You can follow Forge Leadership Network at Forge Leadership on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information about Forge programming, please visit forgeleadership.org.